You have downloaded the Fun Palace Radio Variety Show. I'm Jacob Zimmer, the Fun Palace's official steward. On behalf of the Fun Palace, I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'd like to thank Cedric for editing and hosting this podcast. May your days be filled with the variety you deserve. Enjoy the show. Come and listen into a radio station where the mighty hosts are On this episode, a comic song by Marty Topps, the mysterious death of WB Chapter 2, a quote-unquote dramatic reading of the internet, and songs by Tom Gill and Isla Craig. Welcome back to the second episode of the Fun Palace Radio Variety Show. I'm your host, Cedric Littlewood. Apparently, the powers that be at the Fun Palace were sufficiently satisfied with the job I did editing and hosting the first episode, so here I am again. They did have a few notes for me, however, which were delivered in a plain brown envelope and left mysteriously at my doorstep. First off, good job, Cedric. Don't be afraid of being yourself. All right, I I think I can manage that. What else? The theme song was arranged and is being performed by Scott Maynard with the Fun Palace Players. And a lovely tune it is. Thank you, Scott. Okay, these notes aren't all good. Um, Here's a correction. Last episode, when introducing musician Ryan Kamstra, I said... He is the author of Late Capitalist Sublime, which is not actually a critique of capitalism, but is in fact a book of poetry. The Fun Palace responded, Being a book of poetry does not mean that something is not a critique of capitalism. In fact, all books of poetry might be seen as a critique of capitalism. Well, all right, they may have a point there. I can't think of any poet with a stock portfolio, though it is, of course, a noble pursuit. And finally, we don't have a grand council. The Fun Palace is simply the Fun Palace, and anyone could be a Fun Palace. Well, that's clearly stated, if not super helpful. Alrighty then, let's move on to our first segment. Marty Topps is an award-winning musical comedian from Toronto who burst onto the scene with his debut album, A Loving Tribute to Tap Out. I wasn't sure what this tap-out was, so I googled the term, and this was the first thing that I found. Tap-out is a brand of clothing worn by bros and douchebags. The main purpose of wearing tap-out clothing is to distinguish douchebags and bros from the normal populace. Well, that is certainly an important public service. Marty's live act has been described as a have-to-see-it-to-believe-it combination of absurdity, synth-pop, and incredible comedy. Since this is a podcast, you'll have to hear it and believe it. Here's Marty Topps with Boyfriend. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Marty Topps. Uh, how are you? <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, tonight, I will be singing songs 
that I wrote for my wife. She decided not to come tonight, so I apologize that my set won't make sense to anyone here. But maybe you can relate. Um, Because love is hard. Marriage is hard. Makes you think about things like love. Can I get that up a little bit? And uh, you know what I was thinking when I was thinking about love? You know what I found? Love is a bus. And I got inside that bus. And I never got off that bus. What other people got on that bus too? And here we are. You're saying, please I get off that bus. But I'll never get off that bus. Because that bus is you. Break up with your boyfriend. Please break up with your boyfriend. Won't you break up with your boyfriend? It's really embarrassing to me. Break up with your boyfriend. Please break up with the guy that you live with. Break up with your boyfriend. Please. Love is a mouth. And I live inside that mouth. And you put other men inside that mouth. But I still live inside that mouth too. It's uncomfortable. Share this mouth with all these guys. But it turns out they're real cool guys. What a nice surprise from you. To your boyfriend Say konnichiwa to your boyfriend Say aloha to your boyfriend Buenos dias to your boyfriend Say alvidasen to your boyfriend Say ciao bella to your boyfriend Say toodaloo to your boyfriend Say banui if it's your boyfriend Say gutnat to your boyfriend Say namaste if it's your boyfriend Say guten tag to your boyfriend Say hasta mañana to your boyfriend Say ni hao to your boyfriend, say salam alaikum to your boyfriend. That was Marty Topps performing his song Boyfriend at the Monarch Tavern. I thought that was pretty funny, and I'll probably have that tune stuck in my head for the rest of the day. I noticed that in the package sent to me by the Fun Palace, there are photos depicting Marty wielding what appears to be a kitar. If you're curious, you can view the photos at the website funpalace.ca. Up next, we continue the thrilling saga, The Mysterious Death of WB, Chapter 2, performed by the Fun Palace Players. Ladies and gentlemen, the Fun Palace Players are proud to present Chapter 2 of The Mysterious Death of WB. We return you to 1941, and Gabriel Novus, a retired detective, trying to lead a quiet life in spite of a world war. Approached by people claiming to be friends of the obscure writer Walter Benjamin, Novus finds more than he bargained for in The Mysterious Death of W.B. Though based on actual people and events, The Mysterious Death of W.B. is a work of fiction, the truth unknown, or even when it is known, well, we just make it up. I had been to the library. The librarian George wasn't telling me much. Walter Benjamin had told or given him something, and he wasn't telling anyone. Not yet, at least. I went home, 
Poured that drink I'd been asking for, poured a few more, and went to sleep. The next day, same as the last. Still a bookseller, kids. That hasn't changed since yesterday. Mr. Novus, please. I know you're interested. Why else go to the library? I wanted to get a book out. Uh, You left empty-handed. Spying on me ain't gonna make me want to help you much. Our apologies, Mr. Novus, but we're quite desperate. And why is that? Benjamin isn't exactly top on anyone's list. I didn't know if that was true. There were a lot of lists in those days, and anyone could be at the top of any one of them. We've received word from the Institute. Adorno hasn't heard from him in two and a half months. So why don't you go look at yourselves? We lack the resources and our, what's the term? Known associates. I see. And what makes you think that I have the proper papers? Uh, we've, we've looked into it. Oh? Yes. Well, I am a very well-documented bookseller. You may know, however, the current powers aren't necessarily fans of international literature. Do you want us to beg? I was tempted to say yes. I've always had a soft spot for earnest begging, and these two seemed ready. I knew I'd look into it. If they were telling the truth, and that if did bother me, and Benjamin was missing, even from Adorno, I wasn't sure I could help him. But I knew I'd look into it. The only question was, did I want these two to know I was looking into it? No, sweetheart, begging won't be necessary. However, when a customer asked me to find a rare book, and this is a very rare book, I have a policy of payment. Perhaps you'd be interested in putting a non-refundable deposit down to cover the expenses and trouble, say 100 francs. (laughs) That's a very large deposit. It is, as I said, a very rare book. And the current situation makes looking a task that requires no small amount of risk. We will pay. Thank you. Is cash acceptable? Oh, it's insisted upon. Well, here you are. And here is the address where you can contact us. Thank you. I'll be in touch. So... I'd taken the case. Their willingness... Mr. Or... Novus, my dress is caught in the door. So I just have to get through the next bit. All right, I'll just stay here then. Okay. So, I'd taken the case. Their willingness, or rather their ability to pay, didn't do anything to ease my gut about these kids. Anyone carrying that much cash around in times like those? Well, let's just say that no one who ran in Benjamin's circle had that much cash. But they didn't feel like the Gestapo, so I decided to proceed. With caution, and with their hundred francs... A visit to Benjamin's room in Paris provided me with nothing. It was inhabited by some Belgian emigrants who had rented it from the landlord. They knew nothing of Benjamin, and nothing had been left behind. The next visit was to Adrienne Meunier, a colleague of mine in the bookselling racket, more interested in new writers. She and Benjamin were friends, and if the kind of rumors that spread about these things were true, and they never are, perhaps more than friends. Well... Welcome, Monsieur Novice. Don't have enough books in your own shop? Miss Monnier. Oh, I have plenty, thank you, since no one is buying these days. You Nizal? Care for a drink? Thank you, if it's no trouble. Oh, none at all. One for you. Et pour moi. So, Monsieur Novice, if it's not the books you're looking for, then what? Mr. Benjamin, actually. He seems to have left. Yes, he has left. Left to wear. How much more easily the leave-taker is loved, for the flame burns more purely for those vanishing in the distance, fueled by the fleeting scrap of material waving from the ship or the railway window. Separation penetrates the disappearing person like a pigment and steeps him in gentle radiance. Miss Monnier. Uh, sorry, uh, a chill came upon me. 
Do you know where Benjamin went? Oh, Monsieur Novice, I didn't think you had an interest in Walt Benjamin's work. Well, not a commercial one, no. Though I always found it useful for bedtime reading. You think mocking him is going to help you? No, of course not. That he was a great mind, I understand. It's his writing that I don't. The blame for that lies more on me than it does on him. Is, Monsieur Novice. Benjamin is a great mind. He's still alive. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. Where has he escaped to? You still haven't answered my question, Monsieur Novice. Why are you looking for him? In my years as a P.I., I learned that people rarely just told you anything important quick. And now with everyone seeing secret police around every corner, it wasn't getting any easier. I heard that he was missing. Even Adorno doesn't know where he is. I'm concerned. As are the people paying you, no doubt. You have gone back to your former employment, then? Maybe. Yeah, a young couple are paying to look into his disappearance. My hunch is they're okay, and I haven't decided if I'm going to tell them what I find. Shall we say I'm curious, and they're willing to pay for my curiosity? Did they say where they were from? No, maybe Swiss. Ugh. Gave German names, but uh, the accent wasn't right. Said they were from the Institute. Seemed more concerned with a manuscript with the... Wow. Wow. Encore une fois? Encore une fois. Said they were from the Institute. Seem more concerned with a manuscript than with Benjamin, actually. A manuscript? I'm sorry, Monsieur Novice, but all I can tell you is he left two months ago. Thank you for stopping by. It's time I closed my shop. I never did like getting those slammed behind me. But I didn't blame her. Monsieur I'm... Novice, your coat is caught in See, my door. If you hadn't said anything, nobody would have known. It's radio. Allons-y, alors. I never did like getting doors slammed behind me, but I didn't blame her. Obviously, there was a manuscript, an important one, one that Benjamin had taken with him wherever he had gone, one that he thought people might come looking for. This wasn't going to make my job any easier. I started the walk home. Please don't turn around, Air Novus. I would rather not shoot you. Well, that makes two of us. And that concludes Chapter 2 of The Mysterious Death of WB. Why was shooting being discussed? Who else was following Benjamin? Find out next time in The Mysterious Death of WB. Okay, so I did some fact-checking here. Walter Bendix Schönflies Benjamin, German, 15th July 1892 to 26th September 1940, was a German philosopher and cultural critic. An eclectic thinker, combining elements of German idealism, romanticism, historical materialism, and Jewish mysticism, Benjamin made enduring and influential contributions to aesthetic theory and Western Marxism. That's five isms in one sentence. Impressive. He is associated with the Frankfurt School, and he was also related by marriage to German political theorist Hannah Arendt through her first marriage to his cousin, Gunther Anders. Wikipedia also contains some potential spoilers, so a warning if you don't want that. I tried not to look myself. No one named Gabriel Novus seems to have existed, so I've concluded he is fictional. George at the library seems likely to be Georges Bataille, a French intellectual and literary figure, and librarian. He did work at the Bibliothèque Nationale de France and was friends with Walter Benjamin. Finally, 
The Institute for Social Research is an organization for sociology and continental philosophy, best known as the institutional home of the Frankfurt School and of critical theory. All right, this is all getting a bit heavy. Maybe we should cleanse our mental palate with a song by Tom Gill. I might play this song faster than I normally do just to inject a little craziness into my brain.
and take up life in me. And now I'm asking you, say is my Fun Palace. That was Tom Gill performing Is My Living in Vain, a song originally by the Clark Sisters. I looked them up and it was well worth it. Originally recorded in 1985, it captures the Clark Sisters at the peak of their formidable powers. Tom Gill is a Toronto musician with a Bandcamp page at isthisthomas.bandcamp.com. A writer on Wavelength Toronto said Tom Gill was Toronto's melismatic, which apparently means messiah, in a quite interesting interview. I will put that in the show notes for this episode. This next segment is the first of a series by the Fun Palace players that they call Dramatic Readings of the Internet. It was adapted from The Cloud is Not the Territory by Ingrid Burrington of wagingnonviolence.org developed in collaboration with Creative Time Reports. Now, I've heard the phrase, the map is not the territory, so I looked that up for clarification. The map is not the territory metaphorically illustrates the differences between belief and reality. The phrase was coined by Alfred, someone with an unpronounceable Polish surname. Our perception of the world is being generated by our brain and can be considered as a map of reality written in neural patterns. Reality exists outside our mind, but we can construct models of this territory based on what we glimpse through our senses. I guess this concept has now been updated to reflect our online global consciousness. Adapted by the Fun Palace players for the Fun Palace, we are proud to present... The The cloud cloud is is not the the territory. The NSA has your data. Facebook has your data. Google has your data. By now, these are familiar tropes in a familiar debate. Rarely in that debate, however, does anyone actually explain where the NSA, Facebook, or Google keeps your data. The usual shorthand is... In the cloud. Which is to say, on a server somewhere connected to other servers. While technically accurate, this highly marketed metaphor hardly sheds light on where our data resides. One imagines metadata floating like a thought bubble in a comic strip away from personal computers to some impossible destination that is at once everywhere and nowhere in particular. We tend to forget the significance of how data is stored. But information about our habits, contacts, and preferences must live somewhere. Last fall, I decided to go see where. Internet infrastructure is in specific places for specific reasons. 
Natural resources. Local politics. Economics. Even the history of the internet itself. The hidden geography of data is, is folded into a larger terrain of corporate and state power. My itinerary was shaped by an interest in two companies. Corporate Office Properties Trust. Or COPT. A real estate company dedicated to building office properties and data centers for defense contractors. And Amazon. Or Amazon. A company which has fundamentally changed how people live on the internet. And where the internet lives. Convenience and history led both companies and me to Loudoun County, Virginia. An estimated 70% of internet traffic goes through Loudoun County's 5.2 million square feet of data centers every day. 5.2 million. The first data center I sought out was DC-6, a data center in Manassas, Virginia. A video of DC-6 shows selective glimpses of the data center's interior, where men... Only men... ...perform mission-critical work with diligence and ease. The Virginia landscape revealed architecture and aesthetics optimized for machines. My presence would have been disruptive were it not so obviously diminutive to these inscrutable black boxes of information and the sprawling landscape that they inhabit. I was a forgettable data point passing through an infinite stream. In 2013, Copt announced that it had purchased a new site in Loudoun County. Amazon was to be its primary tenant. In the same year, Amazon announced that it had secured a $600 million contract. $600 million? With the CIA to provide the intelligence agency cloud computing services. It's unlikely that this center under construction is the CIA Amazon data center. However, Amazon job descriptions for engineering technicians require applicants to obtain and maintain a top-secret top security, security clearance with sensitive compartmented information eligibility and access, a requirement not included on listings for the same position in other cities. When I visited the site, it was still mostly dirt. In a lot across from the site, a strangely suburban condominium complex was going up. The buildings were part of Ashby Ponds, an insisted living community. Ashby Ponds! It made some sense that the new housing would be for the retired and not for a workforce. COP's new construction is estimated to bring $300 million in investment to Loudoun County. $300 million. But only 45 jobs. 45 jobs. What's at stake for people living in data center growth regions? Their homes. Jobs. Their way of life. Feels worlds away from political arguments about what's being done with the data in those centers. Before I ventured on this trip, I had received a message from a friend saying that he might have found yet another Amazon data center in Virginia. 
Although I thought of this as one of the more intimidating sites on my itinerary, it proved to be the smallest and the closest to a semblance of civilization. It was next to a pet resort. What's a pet resort? I think it's where pets take vacations. Down the road from a mall. What's a mall? You know what a mall is. And a short drive away from the office of a major defense contractor. I know what that is. Stop talking. No signs identified the building's tenant. The only logos I noticed were those of Caterpillar. Built for it. Which were on the generators and Allied Barton. Don't be caught unprepared. Which is on the badge of the security guard who eventually asked me to stop taking photos. Please stop taking photos. This more or less concluded the day's expedition. I returned home and retraced my steps with my phone, which had been quietly Quietly collecting my location data all day and sending it to a Google server somewhere, possibly in Northern Virginia. While I had struggled to seek out pieces of the cloud, the cloud kept a pretty good pulse on my location. Users accept this information asymmetry in part because of a misunderstanding. One, they believe that the internet does not take up space, and since it doesn't take up real space, that... Two, our data isn't really somewhere else, or in the hands of someone else. Data takes up space. The space it takes up... And the water... Land... And electricity that get used in taking it up... Remains, for the most part, out of sight, out of mind, and utterly uninteresting to actually look at. In trying to see where data lives, I hoped to better understand how we live with data, and, by extension, with the myriad forms of surveillance that it enables. Surveillance is a complex public-private partnership. Lifting the fog that surrounds the cloud isn't a matter of merely locating many nondescript buildings, but of looking at all the other elements that make its many particles crystallize. None of this infrastructure has to, by design, function as an instrument of surveillance. Internet infrastructure could be treated like the actual infrastructure it is. Like highways. Like water management. Like food safety. Like something that the public has a right to understand, and that its proprietors have a responsibility to explain transparently. We live with data by pretending that we don't. The opacity of internet infrastructure and its policy. And the insistence that ideally users shouldn't need to see or understand either. This obscures data, the institutions that hold it, and the power they exercise with it. Ultimately, in a geography of power, the cloud is not the territory. And that concludes dramatic readings from the internet. Wow, that was certainly dramatic. That piece was performed by the Fun Palace players, Jacob Zimmer, Becky Johnson, Christopher Stanton, and Susanna Fournier, directed by Chris Earle, with music by musical director Jonathan Ajemian and sound designer Richard Fearin. Fern? I'll get that right eventually. We now close this episode with a song by Isla Craig, who also has a Bandcamp page, Her name is spelt I-S-L-A Craig. The page provides the following vivid description. Like the sole of an elephant's foot, which feels the vibrations and drums of the earth, the line between dream and reality is no line at all. 
the bones begin to sway with the roots and leaves as the tales of spirit and moss runs through her blood and out her body and mouth, for she has both her feet in the stream of song. And in this case, the song is There is a Hole, performed at Double Double Land in Toronto's Kensington Market. Oh, to be 
Thank you for listening. You can find the Fun Palace at funpalace.ca or wherever good podcasts are found. Go forth. Have fun. Multiply variety. Multiply variety.